Hello and welcome to another edition of the Good Trash Garbage Shoot. I've gone rogue. It's me, Dalton. Arthur's not here. I'm off the leash, baby. Uh, Arthur and Dustin are on assignment. They were not available uh, to talk about uh, this very cool movie with me. So I have assembled a little motley crew of uh, good trash alum and family uh, to talk about Todd Haynes' May, December with me. Uh, today we are joined by filmmaker and co-host of Serious Storytime Talk, Nick Sanford. Uh, hey, buddy. Hi. I am very qualified to talk about this film. <laughs> Uh, we are also joined by uh, the co well, yeah, I guess co-host now that you have Laurent as a full-time co-chair, mm-hmm. uh, co-host of the Cinematic Schematic uh, and former Good Trash Genre cast co-host, Kayla Masters. Well, hello, Nick. I have a lot of questions about how this film pertains to you, but uh, we'll save that for the conversation. Uh, and last but certainly not least, my very good friend uh, and former contributor to uh, the Frightful Film column over at GoodTrashMedia.com. Uh, the one and only Kirsten Thurkelson. And uh, I'm secure. And make sure that you put that in there. I... <laughs> Ooh, what a good squad we have here today to talk about one of my favorite films of the year, May, December. Uh, for those of you not in the know, 20 years after the notorious tabloid romance gripped the nation, a married couple buckles under the pressure when an actress arrives to do research for a film about their past. Directed by Todd Haynes, script by Sammy Birch, uh, this film premiered at the 76th Cannes Film Festival, uh, where it competed for the Palme d'Or, uh, premiered in May. It was then acquired by Netflix for uh, North American distribution for about $11 million. Uh, it also screened opening night at the New York Film Festival in September. It hit theaters uh, very briefly for its uh, awards as qualification run in November and then premiered on Netflix on December 1st of this year. Uh, folks, I uh, have been really looking forward to talking about this. Didn't think we were going to get a chance to because Arthur and Dustin and I are doing so much here and cramming. Uh, but uh, we are going to get to talk about this one today. So I just want to go around to our illustrious guest hosts today and sort of get a vibe check. Uh, now that we've got sort of the preamble out of the way, you know what it's about. Oh, I have forgotten to tell you, uh, it stars Julianne Moore and Charles Melton as the central couple and Natalie Portman as Elizabeth, the actor that begins to insert herself into their lives. Um, Caleb, we'll start with you. What do you think about this film? Thumbs up, thumbs down, review, Roger Ebert style. We're just going to kind of quick hit the highs and lows. How do you feel about the movie? As a sequel to Black Swan, very disappointed. <laughs> very disappointed. But uh, on its own right, though, no, I, seriously, I had a great time with this movie. I, I, I'd seen the trailer for May, December, didn't know really a lot about it other than it was directed by Todd Haynes, whose work I really like. And I was on a ride. There's a there's a joke that lands about five or so minutes into the movie, and it had me, had me in its clutches, and I stayed on that ride for another, what, two hours or so and had an absolute blast. Uh, it's it just gets camp right, which is very rare these days. So from from me, that leads to a thumbs up. Oh, I have to shout out all the performances, especially Charles Melton, a plus top tier from these three folks. Uh, Thurk, you just caught up with it this weekend, right? This past week, like three days ago. Yeah, yes, I just that, watched it for the first time. Yeah, so I'm I'm very excited to hear your thoughts on this one. There's so much about this movie that is so like it very much is up my alley. Uh, there was no way that I was not going to catch it at some point. Uh, I mean, I loved it. It's probably my, I mean, okay, let me restart that sentence. 
it is definitely my favorite thing that has come out this year. And given enough time, it might even make it like into my top 10 films period which is pretty high praise i know for like such a recent watch oh no hey. but i love i know i love the scorching hot big. yeah let's just throw it yeah no i love it sometimes a movie comes out and you're like oh shit i've been waiting my whole life for this yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I was hey everything everywhere had me you Ooh. know hook line sinker last year so i know exactly how you feel yeah um hell yeah Sanford, uh, you watched this a couple of days after I did. I think I think mm -hmm. I started texting you about it to see if you'd seen it yet, and then you caught up with it because mm -hmm. uh, it was already on your you know year end catch up list. Uh, where are you landing with this one so far? I thought it was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Todd Haynes is a bit of a blind spot for me. I think the only thing I've seen of his before this was Carol, uh, which I enjoyed well enough. I think I would enjoy it more now that I kind of know more of. I've been since watching May, December, I kind of went down a little bit of a Todd Haynes rabbit hole, finding just all the interviews and mm -hmm. kind of just what his sort of place and kind of, you know, the last 40 years of film culture has been. Um, and I kind of get what more of his deal is now, you know, the more that I learn and, and it, it all is like starting to click for me more. Uh, yeah. That's, that's important context. Do you mm -hmm. mind if I, I jump mm -hmm. in real quick? Yeah. So if you don't know already, um, He's sort of a contemporary of Gregor Rocky, kind of part of the, the new queer cinema and like a 90s American indie film. Um, Rocky is somebody I have like way more of a base with. I'm, Haynes is a huge blind spot for me as well. And this is this is the first film of his that I've actually checked out. Um, but he's really been making the rounds, uh, as you said, doing the Q&As and the interviews with this movie. And there's there's some really good stuff out there. Uh, the director's cut, the DGA podcast. Uh, he's got a good one there uh, with uh, Greg Araki uh, uh, moderating the Q&A. So that's a great one. And then um, I, I think uh, there's another one where he, it's uh, the co-writer of Zola uh, moderated it. Uh, I think that was for film at Lincoln Center. So some good interviews out there right now. If folks want to go get more context on this, uh, kind of check out the, what the director's thoughts on the films uh, film is. Um, it's interesting. He's usually a writer-director, but the last couple of movies, he's worked from uh, scripts uh, by other screenwriters. Sammy Birch, again, is the screenwriter here. Uh, what, what do you think of that, Nick, as you've been learning more about uh, about him? What do you think about the, the choice to, to work from a script by somebody else or uh, – uh, does that, that does that impact how you think about uh, your take on the movie at all? Not at all. I mean, Alexander Payne also this year is working from sure. a script that he did not himself write, but still, you know, connected to. Although it's a little bit different with the holdovers, because I think Alexander Payne kind of commissioned sort of that script a little bit. Or, you know, had a lot more, um, you know, really started pushing the, mm -hmm. the boulder down the hill quicker. But uh, as far as May, December goes, um no, I think, it, you know, it's clearly a personal film. He's got things he's trying to say with it. You know, I think the actors, it was Natalie Portman who actually brought the script to Todd Haynes, wanting to work with Todd Haynes. Um, yeah. And I think he, I think he makes the most of it. I mean, I, I, I give predatory behavior to big thumbs down, but I give the film and its exploration of all that uh, two big old thumbs up because to me, this movie, and I imagine we'll get into it is a lot like killers of the flower moon in that it is using the medium is turning in on itself asking why do we watch this shit? Yeah. And that's what I, that's, that's when it like clicked for me. 
Hell yeah. Uh, well, I, I will go ahead as I've already, I've tipped my hand and said this is one of my favorite films of the year. So I'll, I'll go ahead and elaborate on that real quick. And then we'll we'll sort of get into a more spoiler filled uh, analysis and discussion. So obviously, the table is pro this movie. Uh, if you're hearing this and you're thinking uh, you haven't been sure whether or not you're going to check this out, consider this our endorsement. The table likes the movie. We think you should watch it. It, it is not every day that Netflix puts out something that qualifies as art. Uh, in fact, it's not most days. Uh, so, you know, helping you cut the wheat from the chaff in terms of the streaming deluge. Uh, please check this one out. Here's what I think. Uh, I, I'm, I'm right in line with everybody else as far as uh, really appreciating the camp here. I, the tone of this movie is so electrifying because it's doing so many different things so skillfully uh, and just kind of slamming you as an audience member back and forth between like the most painful stuff and like kind of a heightened melodrama version of it, but still like very believable, very empathetic, very humane. And then at the same time, it'll do this, a weird kickflip on you and go, actually, I'm hilarious. Hi, I'm, I'm the funny part of the movie. Uh, I'm anybody who has heard me talk about Dallas Buyers Club knows I'm pretty much fucking out on butterfly metaphors. <laughs> Uh, but man, this movie pulls it off. Uh, and that, that is a, a credit to its mastery of its, its weird tonal experiment. Um, yeah, Birch and Haynes really working well to kind of weave, you know, both humorous lines, like as, as Kirsten mentioned, Gracie has, uh, Julianne Moore's character has this, this great beat where she, she talks about how she, how self-assured she is and how she really wants to make sure Elizabeth puts that in the performance. And she's very, I'm very secure. <laughs> just like the lisp she's doing. And like all these, which these, by the way is the real person had a lisp. It was, yeah, I, so this kind is of impressive. very loosely inspired by Mary Kay Letourneau's story. Um, I think wisely the film chooses a, a fictional couple to explore. And, and I think that's very much to the movie's credit. And I think the movie's kind of about that decision. Um, but as, as Caleb notes, Mary Kay Letourneau does have a lisp. And I think it, that's sort of an interesting component of the character to go ahead and import over to this fictional story. Um, it, it's a choice that reads very arch and could be too much. But I think it's perfect for the tone of this film and, and more like absolutely nails it. And it, it really goes to another degree when Natalie Portman starts imp imp doing an impression of the lisp. And then we are straight to hell folks. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. This movie is uh, a two big thumbs up for me as well. I, I cannot more highly endorse it. Uh, that said, it's tough. I'm not going to sit here and pretend the subject matter isn't, isn't really uh, troubling and isn't, isn't a tough time. Uh, especially if you, you know, have any sort of, connection to this kind of subject matter. So I, I, I totally get if you're going into this with your hackles up a little bit, especially as we're kind of talking about it being funny. Um, but it, stay with us. If you want to like really get into it, if you want to know what the movie's about before you even watch it, stay tuned. Cause now we're going to kind of talk about what happens and what it means. That's what we like to do with the good trash genre cast. So if, if you're already sold, go check it out on Netflix right now. Uh, there, here be spoilers. Uh, you can't blame anyone but yourself if, uh, for knowing what happens in the movie from this point. Um, so, Caleb, you mentioned the first joke in the movie, which mm -hmm. is sort of the, the hot dog gag. Uh, Gracie looking in the fridge saying, I don't think we have enough hot dogs. And the music is going. The sting. It's yeah. a huge yeah. sting. And then it cuts to a grill that is just full of yeah. hot dogs. Melton just like yeah. standing guard over the most hot dogs you've ever 400 seen. 400 hot <laughs> yes. dogs. Yeah. And then. Right. Pretty much immediately after that, we, we pivot 
that's that's even before that though. We've got some like kind of light business of Natalie Portman being an asshole. Oh yeah, <laughs> just like immediately establishing that Elizabeth is like kind of a schmuck. Like it 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 isn't super obvious right up front, but like small stuff like kind of the way she rolls her eyes at Savannah. Uh, well, even the way she introduces herself. Hi, I'm so and so, and also um, by the way, I promise I just want to do justice to your story. She's like overly well, even before that. She's it, like on the phone talking with her. I think it's her partner at that point, but she's like complaining about how her Uber driver was talking her ear off. Oh, like, yeah, and then she yeah. takes the the gift basket bottle of wine to Gracie uh, and. Um, Oh my God, Charles Melton's character's name is escaping me at the moment. Um, not important. Caleb, thank Joe? you so much. Joe, that right. sounds right. Yes, Joe. Alfie. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> so she takes the bottle of wine from her gift basket over as a gift. It's just like little stuff like that. And then boom, we get the box of shit. And it's just like, yes. what is happening? Uh, so where where did you guys start to pick up? Obviously, these these early moments, I think, are huge. Where did you really kind of lock in on the tone? Uh and like, what what are some of the choices that really stood out to you as far as this this kind of this camp that we're talking about? Well, the, I just one thing, I, yeah, the hot dog moment was my big moment. The thing I, I think, just in terms of the source of the comedy for me and the way the movie uses it so well, is Julianne Moore's character Gracie. Her lack of self awareness, I think, is really what set. I mean, she's so she, she's so she doesn't she's there's no self awareness, and then it's basically Natalie Portman coming in and holding a mirror up to her. So that is really at least for me, was where the source of most of the comedy was coming from. It's the Gracie's ridiculous whole character is someone needs to just show her how ridiculous she is. And that's where we get all these funny beats with Natalie Portman. And so for me, the comedy is coming from, Hey, uh, I don't, does anyone else see how ridiculous this woman's being? Mm -hmm. And then the movie just kind of writing that out, which happens time and time and time again. Well, and they're both acting. It's pretty established early on, too. Yeah. I mean, just the way that Julianne Moore's character is behaving is so carefully crafted. Mm -hmm. Like, and she does everything with a very like slow intention that I think is it it to me anyway. It, it immediately took me there of like, oh, this is the person who is being an actor, and then there is the normal person, quote unquote, who is also. Very cult, very carefully cultivated in all of her, all of her behaviors and 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 speech and everything. I'm glad you bring that up because it is like so much of the the joy of this film is the way these three characters interact with each other mm -hmm. and the way Portman is kind of like modulating her performance of a actor doing research depending on who she's talking to, how sympathetic she is to Gracie uh, is totally dependent on who she's talking to. And I think like the, the moment for me that the like is a real kind of like t tone definer, but also like a really like telling character moment is the moment at the school where Gracie is like shadowing the, uh, one of the two twins mm. and goes to her drama class to do like a Q and a, and they're all so happy to have a, a Juilliard grad there. Uh, and of course the first kid to ask a question asks a sexing question. And instead of like not indulging it, uh, we, uh, Elizabeth kind of tips her hand. Like she's already off the reservation. She's gone full Gracie mode already. And just like starts to talk about the eroticism of shooting a sex scene to a class of teenagers. It's completely inappropriate <laughs> yeah, it's immediately. So inappropriate. And she's shameless. Yeah. And then immediately, like as soon as somebody tries to like get it back on track and like talk about choices as an actor why would you want to play and they don't specifically talk about uh, gracie and joe but they they sort of uh, you know a student's like well, why would you play a villain and she talks about like 
the complexity there. And you, she really shows how she sees Gracie and Gracie's daughter, like it clicks for her. And it's like such a telling moment that like, no, Elizabeth doesn't give a shit about these people. She is like purely in her, in her bag as far as she's like, predatory. She's trying to go from yeah. TV actor to like indie drama darling. And that that's her, what it's all about for her. At least that's, that's kind yeah, of she my smells opportunity. Character. This is career advancement for exactly. her, and regardless that, of who's, Affected by it. Totally. And that's why I'm so glad you brought up like the way they're both acting because like it's, it's it telling and how like Gracie presents herself. But yeah, again, like the, the, the modulations that Elizabeth does are, are really cool. And like for me, there, there's Natalie Portman, good or bad, a hotly contested <laughs> question. And I think uh, when an actor has to play a bad actor, both in terms of like bad at performing as an actor, but also a sort of a villain, bad actor, I think that that gives you a lot to go on with the the choices an actor's making. I think like this sort of solidifies her as like if you, working in the right role uh, with somebody who knows like what her gifts are, one of our finest. I think. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Nick, what about you? Are there are there any like I know we haven't gotten to you yet. Really, are there any like big swing choices that sort of speak to the tone or the characterization <clears throat> that like really kind of like tie it all together for you? Once it got to the bit where, and I don't know, it's 30 or 40 minutes in when she's at the back of the storage room at the, at the, you know, on the steps Mm -hmm. and she's like, you know, doing the over the top, you know, imagining what it would be like, uh, you know, in the spot where it happened. That's when I, that's when the whole movie kind of clicked into place for me because that I've only seen it once and it's been over a week now or about a week now. But that to me is when. I was like, oh, he's doing Douglas Sirk, famous melodrama filmmaker from, you know, from the 50s, written on the wind and uh, Magnificent Obsession and all that. That's that's what he's kind of clicking into is a contemporary because, you know, I've heard the word camp be thrown around a lot with this movie. And we can talk about the differences between camp and melodrama. I'm not really comfortable enough to, you know, say one way or another. But but what this once it got to that bit, it the movie kind of started clicking for me. And it's not that it wasn't clicking for me. I mean, I was baffled uh, the first 10 minutes or so because the music's weird. It's like lit really, you know, bright and sunny, but it's like very this, suburban lighting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and having never seen a trailer for this going into it, I had no idea what the story was. Didn't know whatever. And so like five minutes in, it's like. Okay, they're, you know, Julianne Moore and Charles Melton are kind of being all squishy with each other. And then, you know, there's like a neighbor or whoever who's saying, like, be nice to her, be, or, you know, whatever, like, do it justice, whatever it was at the beginning. And that's when I was like, what the fuck is happening? And, uh, and so it, you know, so it kind of took me a second to kind of like settle into it. That's yeah. a lot. Well, that's- the, the film kind of reveals it well like if you have yeah. no idea what it's about it, it is sort of yeah it's it's a slow drip of information that sort of like ties it together for you as you need to know stuff exactly I'm actually a little curious now based on that i also went into it completely cold and was struggling a little bit to figure out the character dynamics mm-hmm. being like thrust into it like so so cold right mm-hmm. did you guys i i was like vaguely aware that it was yeah sort of loosely based on on 90 scandals um I, I had listened to the ringers discussion uh, or the big picture uh podcast uh, which is you know a ringer show i had listened to their discussion of it uh, up until they were saying all right we're gonna like really talk about what this is about i was like okay well i'm sold on this movie i'm gonna go check this out 
Um, so I was like, yeah, vaguely aware. I didn't even realize it wasn't a student teacher thing though. I, I thought that was, it was still very much that kind of story. I didn't realize it was just, you know, they, he, she got him hired on at the pet shop she worked at. Um, so Ooh, yeah. pet shop. That yes, just hit me too. Like, yeah. Isn't that icky? Yeah. yeah. Getting it the on word. in the stock room of a pet shop well, next to the bait. Not yeah. only that, next to the, it's all. It's you want to talk about so camp. so obvious. Yeah, dude. The word pet. Yeah. This yeah. is my yeah. pet. Yeah. Uh-huh. Grooming. It's, Don't fuck your pet. It's so fucking nutty. It's a pointed yeah. choice. It's so. It's yeah. a pointed choice it's to change such that a big choice. in that way. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the, yeah, that was sort of where I was. Caleb, were you kind of aware I, I of it at that level? I'd seen the no, not really. I'd seen the trailer. Um, I just had read not like in-depth reviews, but kind of the online buzz mm-hmm. uh, from the earlier screenings. And they said, hey, it's like Carol, but way harder. It leans into like the tonal shifts way heavier. And I was like, OK, that's interesting. And then I Julian Moore, Natalie Portman, and I'd heard the very loose premise about Sort of the age differentiation. Mm-hmm. That's about all I knew going in. I'd seen and I saw the 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 first trailer one time. Okay, so I was I was I feel like I, I had bare minimum knowledge going in and wasn't sure what to expect at all. Yeah. And it's some tonal shifts, but for you sure, know, you and I, I mean, we've all seen. I don't know. I'm just up to going on the ride the movie presents to us these days, and sometimes. Uh, Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. In this case, when I I think with that the hot dog joke was like ten ish minutes into the movie, maybe, yeah, and maybe I was like, less, "This yeah. is hilarious." I'm just going to start to view it through the lens of a comedy. But then we get to some of the melodrama uh, later, especially as we were looking at you know Charles Melton's get his name right, uh, Joe character, and that is deeply tragic. So kind of like through my through through my in my mind, it's like. Com- it's broken into two parts. There is the riff on the acting, but there's also this riff on like a a stunted coming of age Mm -hmm, and the tragedy mm -hmm. of that being stolen from a youth for the means of a person to elevate their social status or what have you. Um, which again ties into what Natalie Portman's exploiting later in the film. So it, it was a ride. It took me about, you know, once, once it was over, I was like, huh, I don't know what I just watched, so I had to think about it and watch it again. I know what you mean. I was so I like much like uh, Boy and the Heron, a, a movie that if I had immediate access to, I would have watched the next day a second time. I, I was just like dumbfounded by this and yeah. like, completely like again. I, I went in kind of aware that it's, it has it sort of swings between these these tones, like you said, Caleb. So I was aware of that and that it was going to try to make me laugh at times. So I went in knowing that there were going to be choices that were jokey. Um, and again, I knew kind of what the story was about. So I had a little bit more grounding than some of you, but yeah, I was still so blown over by it. that I was like, I got to circle back on this one. Holy it's shit. A, it's what definitely a two timer. At least I would say, I think it really does give you a lot to, to chew on. It is a dense film. As Nick said, the, the scene in the pet shop with Natalie Portman is huge. And I think it's to get graphic for a second. I, I think it's really smart of the film to not like have it go all the way to like her jacking off or whatever. Like that that's like a, a that's a swing too big. And like I, I when the scene started, I was like, what the hell is about to happen in this movie? And then it that's kind of its strength. It like really messes with you in terms of like setting you up and then zigging where you think it's gonna zag. Uh so I, that that choice is to me like Huge, just like a, a one of the, uh, as Nick said, like a really big swing that I think kind of lays things out. I want to go ahead and talk about the melodrama and camp thing since Caleb, yes. you mentioned as well. Nick, you asked me this off air, kind of what I thought the difference was, and I thought about it for a second. Um, and I, I you, you kind of liked my answer, so I'll say it again. I think it's like the squares and rectangles thing. Um, a lot of melodrama has 
or a lot of camp has melodrama in it, but not all melodrama is campy. But a lot of melodrama can be campy and not always by design. And so that's sort of where I think that it's kind of a Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. uh, again, they, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but they don't, you know, always go together. Uh, but I, again, I think that's, I don't know, does anybody else have any any takes on this question of like, what is the difference between the two and how do they relate to one another? I The only thing is, and this isn't really my take, I was listening to someone talk about this related to a different movie, uh, actually might have been on the Big Picture podcast. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about is camp intentional you know, like, like, like I, there are people who believe that camp is not intentional. Mm -hmm. Like the directors did not intend to make it silly. It just is, uh, because of what it is mm -hmm. kind of, it's got like a sincerity to it. Uh, you know, like, uh, the, the t Tommy Wiseau's the room sort of thing. Like they, they weren't setting out to make a, uh, comedy, but that's what they made. Cause it's campy. Mm. So, I, again, I don't really have a strong opinion on it. I, I tend to think that if a movie's leaning into its silliness while also being grounded uh, firmly in melodrama, I tend to say, yeah, that's campy. Um, is that the most accurate description? I'm probably not the most qualified person on earth to talk about it, but I, I, I think there's, I think the Venn diagram that you laid out, I think kind of uh, really sums up my, my thoughts, but it's worth discussing and uh, listeners, you should really dive into it yourself, honestly. I think if, I think camp works best when it's sincere because there has been kind of this post grindhouse uh, thing the last 15 years where it's like, ooh, we're going to do intentional trash. And it is just played itself out at this. But, you know, like fucking Wolf Cop or whatever, you know, I mean, there have been these attempts. We do love Wolf Cop here at the genre well, cast. I, I, Lou, and, and I'm to be, a wolf. And to be fair, I have not seen Wolf Camp, but... <laughs> Wolf cop. Yeah, no, no, it's wolf camp for sure. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm so tired. Um, but I do think, you know, like, uh, this is such a weird poll, but uh, a few weeks ago I watched this uh, Canadian horror film that was VHS quality on Amazon directed by William Fruit called Funeral House. Uh, it's got two names, but that's one of them. And it was incredibly well directed with the campiest psycho ripoff, you know, screenplay you've ever seen. But I would rather see that than some sort of modern, like, Ooh, I'm going to like intentionally be stupid, you know, because if Tommy was so made the room trying to be funny, it would suck. The reason it works is because there's, you know, the humanity there or whatever. And I think what May December is doing because, and it was like, so the music at the beginning, the, you know, like when the melody of the main theme first started, it reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, like shitty TV movies from the 90s or whatever that I used to watch. I think it is intentionally reflecting those shitty, you know, 90s TV movies without like it's it's part. How do I explain it? It, it is part of the text without trying to, uh, you know, be goofy mm -hmm. about it or whatever. It's 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 making you think of something you would normally think is goofy without being goofy. There are some parts of this movie where it is definitely apparent that it is kind of, it's like dipping its toes in the water of being a lifetime movie. Yes. Yes. But an extremely well executed Which, one. But it's, Which, it's by design though. You know yeah, what I mean? That's, like, that's, that's the thing that I love about this movie and kind of uh, what, you know, made me, compare it to killers of the flower moon is by the end when it, you know, completely breaks the fourth wall because it is a film, you know, you're looking at 
Gracie, this woman who is, uh, you know, as we've all said, um, unaware of herself, not, you know, just doesn't understand her view of herself is not the rest of the world's view of herself. You've got an actor who's trying to research her to portray her, who is also, you know, lacks that crucial self-awareness that Gracie has, who rationalizes her preying on the, you know, emotional instability of this family so that she can do something truthful with it or, you know, whatever bullshit. And then by, you know, when you get to that final scene and it's just pull out after pull out after pull out of her saying one more, I I think I'm getting somewhere good. And it's just shitty. It's, it just kind of broke my brain in a way trying to make me think, you know, thinking about what is it about this shit? Because I grew up on, you know, shitty lifetime movies and shitty, you know, I still like that stuff. Uh, and so for this to use that form, which also the shitty lifetime movies are just those times versions of what they were, you know, what those filmmakers were watching, like in the forties and fifties with the melodramas and all that. Well, and I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice in this conversation. If we don't at least mention camps roots in queerness and the kind of inextricable camp, I mean, Camp is a very queer thing that we are watching a film by a queer filmmaker, right? And I think that saying that camp is only successful if it is unintentional, it, it kind of, I don't know, it kind of I get it. ignores that aspect of camp as a concept. As I was sitting over here. As like, difficult as it is to define. Yeah, I was just spinning my wheels like, what's a good movie that does this to little bit? It's like, oh, duh, but I'm a cheerleader. Like, I really, oh, absolutely. Yeah, to kind of think about like the contemporaries of, of Todd Haynes and the new Or to cinema. even throw it back further to, I mean, like the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, sure. films, two. right? Yeah, yeah. Especially, yeah, two specifically, of course. Yeah, yeah. The other one I thought about was um, Drop Dead Gorgeous, which mm. is, you know, very... <laughs> (laughs) Another one that like uses sort of these inherent observations about middle America and sort of like dials them up a little bit arch, makes them a little, takes up to 11 a little bit and shows the inherent camp in sort of these, the way people are. And so I think, yeah, Christian's so right to, to bring, bring that to it because again, like drag and all these other examples of like, uh, where, where camp, uh, what have, uh, I can't think of their name right now. But a queer commentator uh, for games talked about uh, the Batman as being a movie that's straight camp. I think about that a lot. I do too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really fun I, exploration I, of that idea. Um, yes. But yeah, no, that's that's such. So an, maybe straight camp is only good if it's unintentional. Yeah, I don't know. And it's well, and the, and the that, Batman's movie where it's it's kind of tough to tell. Like, does does uh, what's his? Oh, um, Matt Reeves. Does Matt, Matt Reeves. Reeves know how funny this is? That's one where I'm not sure. I know with this movie, I know Todd Haynes knows how funny this movie is. So, or, or even something like, uh, uh, speaking of our, our great queer cinema icons, Tar, another film that I think is doing, not as campy as this, but has definitely got a foot in those mm. waters. When you find the camp in Tar, it's a little hard to unsee it yeah. at that point. Yeah, once, once you've kind of seen past the veil. Yeah, once apartment for sale yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. infects your brain. <laughs> yeah, you, you become aware. You're so, so right. <laughs> I do want to bring it back to the question, though, yeah. uh, which is, you know, th- th- this movie, I would argue, is very intentional and what it's doing mm-hmm. versus some of the other examples we've talked about, which are just, they are mm-hmm. what they are because people really believed in, they were sincere. They were, they were making the best film they knew how to make. And it just kind of is a little silly. 
So I don't know how to answer. I didn't really answer the question, but I do think there is a there's a difference between what May and December's doing versus some of these others. Sure. I would argue. Um, I, does that make it not less campy? I don't think so. I don't necessarily think so, but it, it's worth noting that there is some subtle differences there. Well, Todd Haynes in interviews has rejected the word camp. That's what made me. That's, that's so funny. And I don't yeah. remember if it was like know that. variety or something like that. But he was like, it's not camp. It's, you know, blah, 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 whatever, which I know authors intent be damned, what, you know, but. Oh, honey, it's campy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I think it's it's especially coming from, you know, him. It's yeah. it's it's an interesting rejection of the hypothesis or whatever. Um, that's but, yeah. that's funny, but yeah, that's yeah. that's that's kind of the the whole thing that's you know got me thinking well, on that. And I think that the decision to well maybe and it maybe it wasn't a decision so much as just kind of the natural way that things progress with these characters is that we get the most camp whenever we're exposed to either you know Natalie Portman's character or Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore having scenes together is the most like that's usually the most camp that we get is this character dynamic whereas whenever there's like almost no camp present there's like no humor present for a lot of Julianne Moore scenes with Charles Melton mm. because that is a significantly more serious relationship I would argue the scene of her having a meltdown and considering suicide over her customer canceling her baking Fair. goods Good example. Fair. That and that that is what you know, that was like kind of another touchstone of the movie that made me go, Jesus Christ, this one like she's a child. Mm -hmm. And especially if you were to believe her fucked up son about the stuff that happened to his mom when she was, young, you know, it's like, yeah, well, no wonder. And, and it's interesting that the lisp, I thought the lisp was a choice to make her more childlike. I didn't know that that was actually based on something, you know. From like, well, you know, and maybe it was a choice by that woman to make herself seem more. Maybe. I mean, hey, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people are performative, but uh, and there's interviews where you can see her have similar explosions on mm -hmm. the air. Yeah, it's, it's kind of again different person technically. Have, have you guys seen the vi the Who Was in Charge video? Mm. That okay. So in the scene, yeah, I, well, yeah, yes. For yeah, in the in the scene from this film where uh, Julianne Moore is is doing the but who is in charge? But who is in charge? Mm -hmm. But who is in charge? And and is like prompting him again and again in this very like badgering, <laughs> like bullying, kind of terrifying way. That's real. Yes, Whoa. that's from a real interview with Mary Kay Letourneau, mm -hmm. where she and it is bonkers to watch a real person pull that shit in real life like well and it brings it back to yeah. what you were saying earlier about the performance aspect like it it does feel i i can't decide if it's hyper aware or not aware at all i don't I, you know because on one hand she's putting on this show and the, this facade to kind of cover up ob her obvious kind of ickiness about her but on the other hand she seems so self-absorbed that I kind of think that she's not in on it, like that she doesn't realize how ridiculous she is. I go back and forth. It's performative, but it also because it's so over the top. But it, it's also like, but maybe she really feels that way. It's almost a psychological question, though, that do people who are these extreme emotional manipulators know that they are emotionally manipulating everyone around them? Or is it a learned behavior that they can no longer actually control that's just sort of a knee-jerk response to, I have lost control of the people around me. How do I regain it? Mm. Ooh, there's so many good irons it, in the fire. Yeah. In the middle. <laughs> I've been thinking about the um, 
the depiction of the made for lifetime, the made for TV lifetime movie that we sort of see a scene of uh, that uh, Elizabeth is on the phone with somebody and she's got the scene on in her, her, her hotel room where Gracie, the made for TV movie, Gracie seduces Joe and it's so big and dumb and exploitative and weird. And then when we circle back to that scene, at the end of this film and see the film that Elizabeth is working on. And as Nick said, she, she asks for another take because she's getting somewhere real. And it's, they're both using the way too over the top snake thing. Yep. Both, both movies, both movies make the snake choice. And that's, that is sort of like a really nice connecting moment. And as, as Kirsten was talking about the ways in which we rationalize, we rationalize and we take advantage of people. It's, it's funny how much of that is already in Elizabeth and how much of that is her like trying to figure out who Gracie is Uh, because we already, the things we learn about Elizabeth is that she's, you know, she's already having an affair. She's with the director of her movie um, is kind of got like a weird relationship with her fiance. Uh, is not always honest with him. Not obviously the cheating, but even (laughs) like the phone call stuff is like really funny. Um, so like both of these women are sort of, again, it's, it's cool to see Todd Haynes, this, this queer filmmaker who has been so associated with like women's stories choose to make a film where it's like, yeah, no women are assholes too. Like everybody's an asshole. And like, we all are sort of engaged in this weird dance of performances. And uh, yeah, I think the, the choices we see these two characters make and how they relate to the people around them, like tell us a lot about what we're supposed to be gleaning from the film, I think. Um, ooh, we're having a good time. Uh, <laughs> Did uh, Charles Melton about to fall off the roof give anyone else a near panic attack? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That looked real. <laughs> yeah, and that's, yeah. I'm glad to circle back to Charles Melton. Let's let's go ahead and talk about sort of where the film is, is not funny at all. And even in some of these scenes we're talking about with, you know, Gracie and Elizabeth, it's not. There's a really funny beat that I think. I want to talk about them and we'll put a pin in them for a little bit. Uh, when she's like at the community center making floral arrangements with Gracie <laughs> and the, the, like the, the woman who's like supervising all the volunteers or whatever comes by and she's like, Oh yeah, this is Elizabeth. I'm trying to show her a good time. And she goes, I bet you are. There <laughs> <laughs> was something that walks off. Um, so again, like, and, and then the, the tension between Gracie and Elizabeth throughout the rest of that scene is pretty nutty. Um, but yeah, we've we've kind of talked around this a little bit, the Charles Melton stuff, and Kirsten right kind of points to um, how much less humor there is in some of those scenes, and I think Nick is right to bring up. It's not even that there's no he humor. There's no humor. Yeah. There, You're there's, right. There's no that life hardly. The yeah. dude spends all his downtime watching fucking painting videos on YouTube. Uh-huh. Yeah, to and, escape <laughs> HGTV stuff. Yeah, what or whatever. His that butterflies is. Right? and his butterflies. Yeah. But, but yeah, and I think the stuff with him is that's like all he so has. grounded in like human tragedy that it is. Yeah, it's not. You're right. It's not devoid of humor, but it is. So it's much so more sad. It's so sad and so much more considered in some ways. They're not yeah. more considered, but well, and to go back to the butterfly metaphor, I mean, he's very much a character who is doomed to staying exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And that that's been observed in real abuse victims also, mm-hmm. is they often get stuck at the age during which they were originally groomed, right? Mm-hmm. And it is devastating to watch. But also So when his kids are older than he was kids. Like, yes, he exactly. doesn't know how to relate to them because they're kind of have more of a quote unquote normal 
existence at 17 because he's still stuck in 13 or part whatever. Part of Sorry, what though. is, you know, you're fine. Part of what is like hanging over his head, right, is like being an empty nester. But like, how do you handle being an empty nester when you're mentally 13 years old? And also he's still like only in his 30s. He's so, 36. so like, he, yeah. you know, and it, it's, he's like in this prison that he can't escape. It's like a, a mental prison that Gracie has put him in. And he doesn't even know a way out. Natalie Portman, you know, when they have sex later in the you're movie. You're so young. Yeah, yeah she says that to So him. you could yeah. start over and like have your own life, a new life. You don't need her. And he's like, but w- what about the thing we just had? And he's still like in his yeah. 13-year-old brain. We just shared something special. That's right. what grownups do. Wow. Mm-hmm. Fucking sniper shot from a mile away. This yeah. is just what grownups do. Yeah. And what... She's being honest with him. She's being more honest with him than the only the other person <laughs> he's been with for the last 23 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene with him and his son where they smoke weed is so, I'd say plus, so profound. And again, it's right before he falls off the, almost mm-hmm. falls off the roof, which is a very anxiety inducing, but it is kind of bookends. That's, I think that's right before, I think it's right after he almost falls off the roof that he says the thing like, I don't know if I'm creating a bad memory for you or not, but I'm trying to relate to you or is where I can't remember yeah. the exact mm-hmm. line, but it is. Yeah. And he's like, no dad, you're, you're doing great. And it's, it's so sad to watch this. He, he can see how much his dad needs him right now. And is, is also like, so kind of taken aback by like the openness that his dad is showing. It's, mm-hmm. it is like a really loaded scene. That's, so sweet and and like crazy kind of, vulnerable yeah a bastion of like kindness and an otherwise like really intense movie um, simultaneously his kids their kids all want to get out of that house as yeah. soon as possible oh too, yeah which is you know that's is gut-riching you know there's so many layers the depiction of them is like way more emotionally in tune than either of their parents is like really cool and, mm-hmm. and and like a very smart observation of like the ways in which people in kind of toxic households kind of can develop a, a, a real awareness of of like they sniff out Natalie Portman's bullshit like yeah. almost immediately, especially yeah. the the uh, honor who's away at college comes mm-hmm. back and is like all so aware of like what the situation is and hates it. Yeah, yeah. Her absolutely. character introduction is really fun. It is really good. Um, I I was thinking about Melton um and the butterflies and then Melton and the final scene where he is not sitting with Gracie at the graduation and is sort of having this moment off to himself. And it makes me wonder, does, do we think he gets free? Uh, so to, to point back to real life and, and Kirsten, you know, mentioned the, the way people get trapped in these situations, Billy Falau, uh, and, um, Oh my God, Mary Kay Letourneau did separate, but he was also with her when she died. So it's sort of a weird, they separated in 2019, yeah. 2018, right? Something like that. Yeah, and then really, she died in like 2020 or 2021. Mm-hmm, really recently. Yeah. So she, she died within the last couple of years. And so he's got got out, but was still, you know, an emotional anchor for her. So it's it's kind of hard to say. I, I think uh, emotionally think there's no way he, he – I don't think emotionally there's any way he untethers himself. Now he yeah. might move out of the house and try something new maybe, mm-hmm. but there's no way he gets out of that shadow, I don't think. Yeah. It, it seems I, – I, I get why you say that. Yeah. Be the sequel June January. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we needed that. God, thank God for you, Nick. 
That really got me a little too much. Sorry. Well, and see, I think that that's part of the genius of this movie is the way that it does swing back and forth between having these, you know, devastating character moments mm-hmm. for, for Charles Melton and for honestly for the kids and for, oh, someone who's doing a great job that's like it's it's much more subtle than Charles Melton's job is the actor who plays her ex-husband. That little <sighs> that little interview. I want to talk about that. that okay, great. great. He's yeah. fantastic. He's doing such he's doing such and he's doing such like a um oh just like a like a pulled back job of you know this is a real insane thing that happened to me that I have done my best to come to grips with mm-hmm. and that I am not going to you know sort of break the seal on how it actually made me I mean except for when he at the like close to the tail end he does just almost get close to like breaking and cry like his voice breaks a little bit whenever he talks about oh I don't remember the exact line but whenever he's talking about uh how does a person how how does a person fall in love with you know a a Mm -hmm. 12 year old boy like and he it really sounds like he's like holding something back like he's doing using all of his power to hold that back and yet he still feels like a, to me, he was kind of the most realistic. He felt very yeah, real. He, yes. grounded. It's a he, very naturalistic performance. Yeah. That I've met a thousand managers of Hertz rental places that are like that dude. Like that's, I mean, he's just a guy. He, and he's it, a guy who's like just figured out how to talk about his feelings right? in his fifties. Yeah. He's just yeah. doing his best, yeah. man. Yeah. He's like, and, I'm going to be honest, but I'm also not going to show you how I really feel, but yeah. you can just see it. He's, he's finally I acknowledge that it would be inappropriate for me to be fully vulnerable with you in this moment. And also, I don't really yeah. trust you anyway. Yeah. Fair. Uh, yeah. One hundred percent. Speaking of people who don't trust her and interview scenes, I really love the scene with the lawyer where we meet Georgie. <laughs> lawyer. Yeah. Lawyer may be my favorite character in the movie and the guy I most relate to. I think if I have to, like, find somebody in this mess to, like, tether myself to, I'm like, I, I get this guy. He sees a bad person and knows they need help. And it's going to be the person to do it because who the hell else is going to do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but wishes he could get the hell out from under it. And just it's it's taken over his life. And he didn't he didn't plan on that being the case. <laughs> but yeah, him his conversation is like so telling in the way he like kind of reveals a lot about Gracie to Elizabeth. And then and then we meet Georgie, who <laughs> also tells a lot about her from a different way <laughs> yeah yeah and 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 is another character who can kind of sniff out elizabeth and like knows what elizabeth is about and like presents to her like okay like tit for tat like get me get me into your industry get me the hell out of savannah georgia um it is it is like a very a, a person who like has learned power plays from one of the best from his. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. It yeah. is very clear that he is a product of her. Yeah. Big yeah, time. Definitely. Do you think he was BSing about the backstory there? No, I don't think I, so. I don't think so. He's Michael Shannon from revolutionary road. He's the crazy <laughs> dude that everyone dismisses who actually is able to spot, even though, you know, he's clearly yeah. an asshole and you know, has all his whatever. But no, I, I buy that a hundred percent just because of the fact that she, at the end is like, none of that was true. And, and again, butterfly metaphors, her hunting at the end. Yeah. That, you know, that was just another sort of like click moment for me with mm-hmm. her, because the thing about her, if you are to believe, and I believe that she was abused at, you know, at the hands of her older brothers, 
shit just cycles it, mm -hmm. it you know and and it just made it's like how sorry do i feel for her because she's still childlike in a lot of ways but she's also a monster i don't know like well as kirsten mentioned earlier at what point does this like, again you don't absolve people for responsibility of their actions but at what point does a bad actor stop being able to change and mm -hmm. does it stops being aware that they're a bad actor. And it's, a fine, is, it's a very fine line. I'm glad yeah, you brought that I up. Which I think maybe in a good place for Tris to wrap up. Because Caleb, where, where are we at, Caleb? You're, about you're four. Up. Yeah, we have 10 minutes, yeah. Okay, yeah. so maybe as we... I've still got my take that's going to break the internet before we <laughs> end. <Okay>. But <laughs> I just want to like connect it to like where we end Elizabeth's journey real quick. Because where we end Elizabeth's journey is, I think I'm getting somewhere real. <laughs> where is she getting somewhere re real with? Coming on to a thirteen-year-old actor with a snake. Oh, when she when when they give that little uh, <laughs> her line of being like, these kids aren't these kids aren't sexy enough. And I think you need to come home. Yeah, I think you need to come home. Yeah, this is such and then that's well. I think the I think that's where we getting to be. You crossed the line. Cut to meeting honor. There is that where we cut to like the car. I'm trying to remember what the cut there is, but there's a it's another sequence where we go from like. Yeah, you need to come home, and then we just go to something else entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I yeah, mean, that's I, such a good beat. It was a great. I mean, Nick brought this up earlier. I just thought it was a really great way to end the film because it turns it back on the audience and makes you question this entire industry of tabloid, Hallmark made you know exploitative Hallmark movies that make people feel good. We're looking for something authentic. It's based on a true story, but, it, well, indie but nothing. None of so this serious. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah sure. None of it's based. Like it's all based off of performative actions of others or it's exploitative you know that I, I felt like that was my takeaway from the movie which is like hey maybe the stuff that we we do this sort of like garbage tv movie things that make us feel just feel good bad whatever are actually just you know tools of hollywood based off of nothing you well, know and the decision for it to be a movie about making a movie exactly. kind of lets it have its cake and eat it too, yes. but in like a really fun way that I don't necessarily, you know, I don't condemn it because it is finding a way to talk about the way that we consume these lurid narratives. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the the key to the whole thing the to me. The thesis statement. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think you're right to connect it to Killers of the Flower Moon from this year that has a very similar kind of goes out on like the medium is the message. Like, what does it all mean? It's mm -hmm, like, right. this is why we use movies. Cause like, how and the here, fuck else are we going to, and also this and is here the are the limitations yeah. of those uh, because yeah. you know, at the end of the day outside and okay, I watch a lot of shitty horror films. I love my shitty Canadian horror films, you know, from the seventies or whatever. There is something to be said for, watching trash, watching, you know, whether it be horror, uh, shitty lifetime movies, whatever you're getting something out of your system, mm -hmm. you know, that would otherwise metastasize or manifest in other ways. But I think what this film does and kind of killers of flower moon, but more pointedly may December is what are you tr like? What, when do you stop? When do you need to stop doing that? When does it stop being, shit for the sake of just, you know, turning your brain off or just getting something out of your set. I don't really know a better way to say it than that versus truth. I'm getting something true. What are we going to learn for like, you know, mm -hmm. the it's pretty self, you know, evident don't have sex with a seventh grader. So what, what is to be gained from watching 
you know, well, shit like that. The, the only so thing you the get fact- is like you make yourself feel better because you're not those people. You know what I mean? And I just feel like there's a lot of stuff. I mean, on, a lot of stuff just in general on Hallmark or, or streaming, or whatever. That's like, yeah, this is terrible. And you can latch onto the characters and like also step away and be like, Oof, I got my shit together. Thank way God more it ain't than, me. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've got to take. This is just take me. This is take a couple minutes. Let's go. This is going to break the internet. I hope you guys are ready. Okay, so talking about melodrama and the music of the film, because to me, half of the melodrama is the actual filmmaking, the way the editing and the music, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. This occurred to me right at the very beginning when the main, when the melody of the main theme started playing. The chord progression, and I was talking to you a little bit about this, the chord progression sound, you know, the da-da-da, 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 sounds a lot like the chord progression of the chorus of Eminem's The Way I Am. <laughs> stick with me, stick with me, stick with me. Okay. Main three actors, Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, Charles Melton, Moore, Natalie Melton, M-N-M. <laughs> Bro, you're so right. I can't stop that one. No way. Well, Folks, oh shit! My phone's going off. I just got hired by Vulture. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I don't know that we're gonna top that. I'm not even gonna try. I I know how to to take a good a good invitation when I see one. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you're still with us, that was Nick. I love you so much. That Sorry. was incredible. Uh, does, do we have any more burning thoughts? I I really am tempted to just say good night, good luck. That's the end of the show. But are we? I do want to give one more time. Yeah, I don't want to suck table. all the air out of it's, the room. Someone else. That was so fucking <laughs> Please say something. Uh, just to add, I think we were talking about this before the recording. Uh, you know, thank God Netflix bought the film and distributed it. It's it's This is a very unique movie. And uh, the fact that it's available in the li- in America, available in our living rooms, is pretty outstanding. And, and while I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen, I also do think it plays extremely well in the mm-hmm. home theater setting. And honestly, kind of reinforces the idea about the Hallmark made-for-TV movie we were talking about earlier. Sure. Wow. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah. Uh, Which is the opposite of David Fincher's The Killer, a film <laughs> that should not be watched for the first time on any sort of home video, whatever. Uh, Isn't that... Didn't they? I mean, that was like the... Okay, but anyway. Like the only way to... Okay. Yeah. 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 There was Why? like even few... I think this got an, a, a bigger release than The Killer did, <laughs> even weird, which is wild. Uh, yeah, I, I think... There is something really interesting about the straight to streaming. Com- I, you know, oh, it was in theaters. Okay, sure, sure. It, it has to be to be considered for awards. Yeah, first if exactly. Apple yeah. is doing a better job at theatrical with their streaming service than fucking Netflix. Yeah, I know. It's Jesus. And Netflix wonders why they haven't won the Oscar yet. Yeah, it's it's such a weird deal. But I, it does, again, like make you consider interesting questions about the nature of of the medium Mm-hmm. Of, of why we engage with these stories, why we tell these stories, and you know what makes one exploration valuable, and which what makes another one you know lurid, uh, and and not in a cool way. <laughs> uh, I think this is lurid in a cool way, uh, as much as anything can be. Um, and uh, I've I've spent a lot of this year banging the drum about getting sex back into the movies. Uh, and, and this is certainly monkey's paw a monkey's paw <laughs> of that. But I, if we're going to do it, we got to think about it. We really got to ask, ask ourselves some questions as a, as a, as a film going public. And I think this is a, uh, 
you know, the monkey's paw delivering in, <laughs> in a valuable way, let's say. Uh, I think that's that there's something here. Um, well, and we didn't even talk about the blush scene, which is the oh, one that we've got yeah. displayed on the <laughs> as our little scene at. setter. So, yeah, let's I guess maybe that's where we should we should talk about the persona slash Mulholland yes. drive of it all. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because that is sort of the two bit uh, to talk how to talk about this movie. We talked about the lifetime. Yeah, we talked about the lifetime movie and we talked about the melodrama, but we haven't really talked about the big, the action. Yeah, the 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 art art. going on. Yeah. 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 Um, And I think, you know, I I haven't seen Persona, but I think Mulholland Drive is a tonally kind of an interesting match with this film. Another film that not to be that guy, but holy shit, you have to watch Persona. I know. I know. I know. Hey, look, there's so not to movies. not to pile pile on you, but you've got to see Persona. I know. <laughs> I'm aware. Hey, I've got I, the Criterion I, Blu-ray. Come over and watch it, buddy. I haven't seen either. Dalton. Right. I will I, come I, over. I, we'll watch yes. it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving me, Caleb. Uh, yeah, you can. I think, get... I think the blush scene is definitely where that's the most that that influences the most uh, scene in the movie. I mean, it's there. It's such a good scene. It's crazy. And again, like in terms of tipping its hat to like the history of cinema, but as again, Kirsten, you talked about like the development of that particular relationship. Like that's such a wild. It's so tense. It's so, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's claustrophobic. It's so intimate. It's, it's, cla- it's claustrophobically intimate. I think that plays really well on a home screen also. It, the it, fact God. that it's, you feel very. Another Netflix product that it makes me think of. Trapped. Is Mindhunter. When Ed Kemper hugs Jonathan, or the guy that's playing Ed Kemper hugs Jonathan Groff in the end of season one. Oh my gosh. Another like moment of intimacy with a predator that's just like. <gasps> you hold takes, your breath. Yeah, exactly. It's just my like, butthole got tight. Yeah, sucks all the oxygen out of your lungs. And you're just like, I don't, how do, how do I work the I body? I can't watch this. How do I work it? And yet I can't look away. Exactly. Uh, uh, do we, ooh, uh, do we have any other big thoughts about sort of the way it kind of shows these two? And again, the button of the movie, the sort of the breaking the fourth wall, the sort of the the final nail in the coffin of her taking on the persona of Gracie. Uh, do, do we do we have any other kind of big big takes on that other than just like man, isn't it cool to see this evolution of a, a storytelling idea that we've played with throughout the history of cinema? Sort of to this sort of I don't know. Do we? Do I, any, I don't have anything. I don't have anything I, myself. I mean, other than this movie again, like. You know, Flower Moon, it just made me realize finally we're getting there. We're moving on, you know, yeah. but that's that's kind of my main. I think really my main thought is that if the listeners at home haven't caught up with this and they're somehow listening to our dumb mouths still talk about it. What are you guys doing, man? You got you got to see this movie. It's it is truly an experience. It's breezy, too. I mean, like I, I, there's a lot going on, but it's a, it's not a super long movie. It's, it's, it's less like, than two it hours. It does not yeah. feel long at it's all. It's extremely yeah. well paced. You're so right. Well, let's go ahead and leave it there. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, to The Garbage Shoot. If you want to tell us if you have already seen May, December and want to let us know what you think, go to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. That is goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for your long form feedback. Uh, you can find uh, all of us all over the internet. Anybody want to, Caleb, why don't you take, take to, you, you're a pro at this kind of thing. Why don't you just take a swing at bat? Uh, well, you can follow me personally on all the channels, uh, Letterboxd, uh, Instagram, X, all that stuff, uh, at C Masters Talk. That's Letter C Masters Talk. But more importantly, you can catch all of the podcasts and essays we're doing over at the cinematropolis.com. We've got a review for The Boy and the Heron that came out last week. Our next episode is going to be The Iron Claw. And hey, we're about to hit on our top 10, or sorry, top 
top five films of 2023 because 10's a lot of movies to get through. Uh, so you can check all that out at thecinematropolis.com. I'll be there with you talking top five movies and might talk about this very film. Thurk, you got anything to plug? Um, not really anything to plug, um, but I actually just wanted to uh, see really quickly. Uh, do you think we could go back and do this again? Uh, I think we're really getting somewhere real this time. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You're so right. Caleb, throw it in the trash. Throw it in the trash. Yeah. One more. One more at bat. Let's, let's take <laughs> it from the top. We're closer to an authentic podcast. Uh, Sanford. Uh, you can follow me, uh, on Instagram.com at Nick the Sanford. You can also follow me every Tuesday at Walmart between three 30 and four 30 <laughs> in Southmore where I do my shopping. Uh, and check out his podcast series, Storytime talk. He and I just did yeah, like an hour mm-hmm. on film culture, letterbox, rotten tomatoes. It's very strange. <laughs> it was an interesting talk. Yeah, it was fun. Um, you can find me all over the internet at Dollywood Squares, uh, even at Letterboxd, where you have to drop the A from squares because of character limitations. Ain't that just the way it goes? Oh, yeah, that is kind of the only place that I'm posting about movies nowadays is follow me on Letterboxd at K-R-A-N-S-T-I-N. Hey, right? there you go. Yeah. It's a great app. It is a great app. Hey, yeah, find all of us on Letterboxd. Yeah, I don't remember what my name is on Letterboxd. I think Letterboxd, you're just Nick Sanford. I think you're just Nick Sanford. Hey, yeah. I'm just Nick Sanford. Go find big, stupid Bigfoot movie uh, if you want to <laughs> see Nick's... Uh, uh, delirious sense of humor, uh, we'll call it. Uh, I love it. Uh, what else? Uh, you can find me locally uh, on Thursdays at 7 p.m. at Film Row, uh, Rodeo Cinema Film Row, with Alex Sanchez doing our show Down in Front, where we talk during public domain movies. Uh, next coming up is The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. After that is Roger Corman's A Bucket of Blood. Thursday, 7 p.m., Rodeo Cinema on Film Row. Me and Alex Sanchez, come check us out. Uh, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, and uh, Arthur, take it from here. <laughs>